running into the show, starting ball! Hello and welcome to Display Frequency. I'm Dan O'Hagan. We are well into the commemorations to mark a hundred years since the Great War, the first major conflict in which air power played a role. It was a truly romantic age of flight. The gentlemen pilots, the knights of the air, names like Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron and Mickey Manick, builders such as Fokker and Sopwith. All right, men, let's do it! The first thing to remember is always treat your kite like you treat your woman. <laughs> how, how do you mean, sir? Do you mean, um, do you mean take her home at the weekend to meet your mother? <laughs> no, I mean get inside her five times a day and take her to heaven and back. I'm beginning to see why the suffragette movement want the vote. <laughs> the legendary Blackadder and Lord Flashheart. These days, there's a huge market in replica and reproduction aircraft from the period, and not just the glamour types, such as the Fokker triplane and Sopwith Camel. July's military pageant at Old Warden featured a static appearance by the soon-to-fly Bristol Scout Reproduction, built as an homage to their grandfather by brothers David and Rick Bremner, along with their friend Theo Wilford. The first flight is maybe just a few days away, but back in November, I went to the hangar in Shropshire where the aircraft took shape and David told me all about this remarkable and very personal project. We used to talk to my granddad a lot you know, when, when we were growing up. He died in 1983 um, and we, you know, we grew up sort of just around the corner from him. So once a month we used to go for, for, for a you know, Sunday lunch or whatever. And he often used to talk about his flying. But... Um, uh, and, and you know, because we were young boys, we were enthusiastic and all the rest of it. But he never actually mentioned these bits that which were sort of uh, just sat in his workshop. Um, and it was only after he died that uh, my dad and I were, were clearing out the workshop. And we found these. And by that time, you know, I knew enough about flying to be fairly confident that that's, that's what they were. Um, but we didn't know for sure. Anyway, we just hang on to them as a sort of family memorabilia. There's the, the control stick here. Um, there's the rudder bar. Um, those are the main controls, obviously, that my grandfather used. And the magneto at the front, which provides the spark for the engine. And then in around about 2002, um, our good friend Theo Wilford, uh, who's a serial aircraft builder, said that he really wanted to build a World War I aircraft and he knew about these parts and he said, well, why don't we look into, into uh, recreating it? And um, so we started on the, the process of research and um, it's, uh, it, it's a funny business. You start with, with just an idea like that and uh, essentially uh, I think what happens is that you, um, you, 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 you look... In, in a way, you look for ways for things not to happen. There could have been all sorts of things that, 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 that meant that the project never happened. Um, and uh, we got lucky because none of those events occurred. And, and no, so no, we never actually got stopped. And no, here we are nearly at, at the completion stage. So how far from completion are we? I would say we're looking at uh, substantial completion of the airframe by the end of the year. We're planning to have it flyable uh, in the spring. 
So we'd like to spend a couple of months getting used to running the engine on the ground, getting the final paperwork all sorted and so on. Um, and then the plan is that uh, the test pilot who will be coming across from New Zealand um, will do the first flight at the end of his flying season, which means uh, at the beginning of ours. The, the nerds among us uh, get... Um, uh, get twitchy about calling it a replica. Uh, it, in, in the world of, of sort of World War I aviation, uh, an original aircraft is one that, that, that has A, original parts, and B, has a complete history. Um, this doesn't count as an original, though we got original parts in it. The original aircraft was destroyed in, in 1916. Um, if you're doing a, um, as accurate as possible aircraft, it counts as a reproduction, uh, one where you've consciously made a decision for reasons of modern practicality to, for example, fit a more modern engine or to perhaps put a tailwheel instead of the tail skid or to build the airframe out of you know, non-original materials, that counts as a replica. Uh, so we, we, we definitely class this as a reproduction with original parts. Um, and that's why we're going for the engine, uh, which is the original engine that was fitted to the aircraft, which is a, an 80-horse Lerone rotary engine. Um, it's, um, it's, it, it was the, the, the height of technology in those days. Um, it, it, it's a, an aircraft, it's an engine, I'm sorry, of, of uh, rotary configuration, but the whole engine rotates, the crank shaft stays still and the crank case rotates um, and they did that in order that the the cylinders because they were rotating would automatically help to keep themselves cool um, but it's a it's a fascinating engine um, it's it's 80 horsepower capacity which is about the same as a modern car but it's 11 liters capacity and um, it's um, uh, it's got a lot of, of inertia. It, it runs very, very slowly, only about 1,000, maybe 1,100 RPM. And that was one of the other reasons that it was very good, because uh, in, in aircraft technology, um, a, a large, slow propeller is much more efficient than a, a small, fast one so that my modern aircraft sat alongside, also has an 80-horsepower engine, but it's got a 1.7-metre diameter propeller, um, and uh, this one has a much less efficient engine, but because the propeller is two and a half meters diameter and only does a thousand RPM, it produces vast amounts of, of thrust and, and uh, therefore it makes this old aircraft about the same speed as my current one. What's been the hardest part of the aircraft to, to build or to source so far? Building the aircraft actually is relatively simple. The, um, the construction is, is standard World War I technology, so uh, all of the wood, uh, you know, we, we obviously have to get the, the, the right quality timber, and that has been something of, a, of an effort. But the bulk of the wood we've, we've cut and shaped and formed ourselves. Um, the same with all the metal fittings. There's a whole lot of... Um, cable bracing on the fuselage here that you can see um, everything's all held uh, held straight by these wires which actually do the bulk of the work and uh, you can see that the, the at the ends here um, the wire has been spliced um, 
today you would normally do that uh, using a, a, a nica press ferrule um, but uh, in those days they were spliced and so Theo Wilford's become uh, a great expert <laughs> on splicing but there were some parts that we, we, we needed to get hold of um, that were beyond our capacity um, the wheels are actually standard uh, vintage motorcycle wheels so they were relatively easy to source although we've had to remove all the tread from the tires which was a bit of a bit of an exercise mm -hmm. um, in under here you can see the oil tank which is made of brass uh, and it's riveted and soldered and uh, again it would have been a, you know, an easy cop out for us to make a modern tank that just fitted in there because it's completely out of sight um, but we've decided to go down a, as nearly as we can the original route and that's been made for us by a local artisan who specializes in veteran cars but undoubtedly the the the, the biggest break we had was in managing to get hold of the the engine um, there are quite a number of um, rotary engines of this type around but on the whole they're owned by either museums or billion billionaires billionaire collectors and um, so offering them you know, money uh, is probably not going to do it um, and in this case we got uh, I have to say a astonishingly lucky with the engine because we managed to do a deal with uh, an outfit in New Zealand called the Vintage Aviator Limited um, which is funded by Sir Peter Jackson who produces the Lord of the Rings films and currently the Hobbit films. Sir Peter's not a uh, he's not a pilot he doesn't actually enjoy flying but he has uh, he's always been fascinated by world war one aviation and has done i would say more than anybody to uh, promote and preserve the expertise in in building uh, and operating world war one aircraft um, he has a, a factory in um, in Wellington uh, which specializes in making World War One aircraft and uh, when they heard about our project um, they, we were again very very lucky that we were able to do a deal uh, and so we have an engine here that is probably in better than new condition because it's been fully serviced by them and they, they, they're confident that it's absolutely airworthy. And the build presumably you had the plans the original plans how did you come by those? Again, it was one of those areas where we, we just got lucky. Um, we, uh, I talked earlier about you know, the idea of, a, of, of the difference between a reproduction and a replica, and we took advice from other operators of this kind of aircraft, and they said that a replica aircraft is, uh, is unlikely to have very much commercial value. Um, but particularly with the Bristol Scout, ours will be the only flyable one in the world when it's complete. There are only really there's only one other um, reasonably accurate reproduction in the world that, that's not flying um, so it's it, it's quite an important historical aircraft it will be of interest I think to to museums and so on so we took the decision very early on to um, to ensure that what we were building was if you like to museum standard um, the the drawings mostly came strangely from the United States. The, um, in 1917 a Bristol Scout was sent across to the US uh, with the possibility that it might be manufactured under license over there together with a whole lot of drawings. Um, at that time the 
the, the drawings from the Bristol Aeroplane Company, uh, we, we didn't think they existed. Um, and so uh, it was the drawings that they'd sent across to America that we, we uh, acquired through one of those you know, amazing sort of uh, serendipitous moments. I'd gone to the Royal Aeronautical Society to look at the notebooks of the designer and while I was there, the librarian said, oh, could you have a look for uh, references to the Bristol monoplane? Because there's a chap from Houston in Texas who, uh, who would like to know. So I did that, and I emailed the guy in, in Houston, Texas, a chap called um, Derek Starha, and he emailed back and said, I gather you're interested in the Bristol Scout. And I said, yes. And he said, would you like some drawings? And this cornucopia of... Uh, beautifully scanned drawings came across and they've been our main reference point. Um, the other big area where we got lucky was uh, that when you're doing something like this, uh, the, the drawings covered about 95% of the, um, the build that we wanted to do um, to the right modification standard that we wanted to do. Um, but Everybody says if you're starting on a project like this, you also need a, um, a parts list. And we knew of the existence of a parts list. And uh, through, again, a series of, of lucky coincidences, uh, we managed to get hold of Sir George White, who is the great-grandson of the founder of the British and Colonial Aeroplane Company, which later became the Bristol Aeroplane Company. And he had this parts list. And uh, it's an astonishing document. Uh, you would think that a parts list you know, from the factory would be a working document. It would be a, like a big sheet of paper um, at, with, with you know, rows and columns and all the rest of it. Well, this is like a coffee table book. Um, and uh, it's bound in beautiful you know, linen paper. It's produced on photographic quality paper right the way through. Uh, it contains all of the information from the parts list, but it also contains photographs of individual parts and also uh, of sub-assemblies. Um, and on the outside, it's dated November 1915, and it says it's available for sale for 20 shillings. And Neither Sir George nor I has been able definitively to, to find out you know, anything much about this document. He found it in the bottom drawer of his great-grandfather's desk when he was clearing out and you know, thankfully kept it. My own theory is that uh, it clearly wasn't a production document. As I say, it's a coffee table book. Um, but the original Sir George had, I think, a brother-in-law who ran a print works in Bristol. And I think this was a Christmas present dated November 1915, I think it was for Christmas 1915 because Sir George owned most of Bristol so a pair of socks probably wouldn't do it and this was, um, this was something original and unusual and, uh, and Sir George had then just, just kept it in the bottom drawer of his desk thereafter. But thank goodness he did. For us it's been a complete treasure trove of information, not only the information on the parts list which I've turned into a spreadsheet and it's formed the main um, document that we've used to control the build but also the, um, uh, the photographs which have helped us to, to interpret some of the drawings and look at some of the other details that, you know, that weren't included on the drawings and so on. Um, so Sir George, the current Sir George, photographed every page for us and you know, we've been able to, to, um, to, to use that as, I say, as, as, a, as a, an absolute treasure trove of information. Fantastic. 
Um, in terms of the Scout, we all will know of the of the, the Sopwith Camel, the, the Fokker triplane. The Scout less so. What was the Scout's role during World War One? It's an interesting um, history. Basically, uh, in 1913, the Army produced uh, a specification for three different types of aircraft based on the performance of the aircraft that were available to them at that time. There was the two-seater reconnaissance aircraft typified by the BE-2C. Um, it did about 60 miles an hour. It had a pilot uh, who uh, flew the aircraft and navigated and an observer who drew maps, took photographs, made notes um, and also um, had a machine gun for, for self-defense purposes. Um, the second type was the fighting aircraft which um, had a, again was a two-seater, again did of the order of 60 miles an hour but the, the engine was at the back and the gunner was at the front in order to give him a, a, a free field of fire, or as free as possible. Um, and it's typified by things like the FE-2B and so on. Um, and the, the third type was the single-seat Scout, um, and that's obviously what the Bristol Scout is, um, but its role was to do tactical reconnaissance so that during the battle it would go up have a look at the progress of the battle and bring the information back quickly to military intelligence so that they could make decisions you know, based on the information as the battle was progressing. Because it was a single-seater, it would be able to do about 90 miles an hour and uh, that meant that it wouldn't have to have any armament because it could outrun uh, anything else with a gun. What then happened was that the, the, the most aircraft in, in 1914 were very unmaneuverable. They were very low powered. Um, they had a rate of climb of you know, around about 200 feet a minute, you know, very, very leisurely rate of climb. Steep turns were something you didn't do because very often the, the aircraft would then fall into the turn, become uncontrollable, and you would crash and die. Um, but what happened with the, uh, the scouts that were produced to this specification, uh, the Bristol Scout was one, the Sopwith tabloid was the other well-known um, aircraft or to this specification, was that with that additional power uh, and with the advances in knowledge about control of aircraft, they became um, a very, very maneuverable aircraft. And the minute pilots got hold of them, the first two Bristol Scouts were available right at the beginning of the war, people fitted guns to them in whichever way they could. Um, they had uh, rifles bolted to the side. Uh, my granddad had his father's old service revolver in the cockpit with him. Um, people had shotguns um, and, uh, and so on. And uh, no, they instantly wanted to be able to use the aircraft uh, in an offensive um, capability. Um, the difficulty, of course, was that uh, what you really wanted was a gun uh, straight ahead of you uh, so that you could uh, aim the thing but um, but then of course the problem was that it, the propeller got in the yeah. way and people devised all sorts of wonderful ways of uh, dealing with that uh, the, the first VC for aerial combat was one in a Bristol Scout by a chap called Lana Hawker and he devised a method where the gun was mounted on the side of the fuselage so that he could get at the, 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 the butt, he could change the drums, he could clear a jam, but it fired outside the propeller arc, firing downwards and forwards, but clear of the propeller. Mm -hmm. 
and he got his VC for downing three Germans in one flight with that machine gun like that. Um, other people mounted the gun on the top of the centre section of the wing, um, but the trouble there was that although it cleared the propeller, uh, you couldn't get at the gun in flight to either change a drum of ammunition or, or clear a jam. Um, I was looking last night and I found a photograph on the Imperial War Museum uh, website of, uh, of an installation where the gun was mounted on the side of the fuselage but pointing straight almost straight down. I have no idea what it was intended for, um, but, um, uh, but that, that was a possibility. Um, perhaps my favourite installation uh, in the sort of barking mad uh, variety is a factory drawing, which I don't think was ever actually installed, but they suggested mounting, in, in the first place, they suggested mounting a Lewis gun on the caban struts, halfway between the fuselage and the top wing, um, obviously in the pilot's line of sight. Yeah but again firing out sideways so that he could, um, he could aim down the barrel. Um, and uh, they drew that up, and I've never seen a photograph of that actually fitted. And then a draftsman in the office, and I, I still don't know whether this is serious or a joke, um, modified that same arrangement for a duck gun. And a duck gun is an enormous shotgun. Mm -hmm. um, they were used, um, typically you, you mounted one on a punt because the recoil was so yeah. stupendous. Had a very, um, uh, a, a very wide field of fire. It just, just you know, let off an enormous uh, um, uh, load of shot, obviously to give you the best chance of downing a duck. Um, but this thing was, was mounted at the same point on the caban strut, halfway up here, and uh, they recognised that the recoil from this gun would break the caban strut, undoubtedly. So they, they mounted a couple of, of rubber bands, large rubber bands on it, so that the, 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 the gun would, would recoil. But of course, if it did that, it would take your face off. <laughs> um, so where will you mount yours? In Grandad's case, what, what the Royal Naval Air Service did was to, to, to uh, accept the fact that the, some of the bullets were going to go uh, into the propeller. Mm -hmm. They just mounted the gun on the side of the fuselage so that it was reasonably easily accessible. It was firing straight forward so that it was reasonably easy to aim. And I think uh, about one in eight bullets would end up in the propeller. Um, they were happy to accept um, about three or four bullets per blade um, in, in a propeller um, uh, before they changed it, which is something we certainly wouldn't do these days. Um, even the tiniest nick gets, um, gets very serious attention from us. Uh, but, um, but they were happy to accept that, that level of damage. And I've, I've done the math. I mean, a, a, a drum of ammunition on a Lewis gun contains 45 rounds. And so you know, one in every eight rounds, that's quite a lot of bullets in the, <laughs> in the propeller. Um, he, he attacked a Fokker Eindecker once and emptied a drum of ammunition um, at the Fokker. Um, he doesn't say in his logbook whether, he, uh, whether there were any holes in his propeller when he got back. But the story he used to tell us, and, and it's backed up by photographic evidence, is that what they did was to um, wrap the, um, the propeller in the line of fire with um, doped fabric to stop the splinters coming off in your face. So what is your grandfather's service history like in the First World War? He had, uh, he had a very lucky war. 
uh, I would say. He, he served, he, he didn't serve on the Western Front, uh, where he clearly would have been at very high risk and all the rest of it. I think he was a very good natural pilot. He went solo after only an hour and a half's flying. Um, and I think they wouldn't have suggested that he, he, he take on the Bristol Scout unless he had uh, quite a lot of natural talent. But he served out in the Eastern Mediterranean, um, initially in support of the Gallipoli campaign. So uh, number two wing RNAS was operating from Imbros, which is an island about 15 miles uh, off the coast. And again, he was very, very lucky because they undertook a whole uh, range of different uh, tasks. He himself flew, I think, 10 different types of aircraft in his six months out there. Um, he uh, did everything from submarine spotting to spotting for the big naval guns that were bombarding the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, he did uh, escort of reconnaissance aircraft. He took photographs. He did the reconnaissance himself. Sometimes he did, uh, as I say, air-to-air -air combat. Um, sometimes he did air defense. They did submarine spotting. And actually, the, um, the Bristol Scout, he had um, a, a little rack of four 16-pound bombs fitted under the nose here, just, just behind the engine. Um, and he, he spent quite a lot of time um, just doing bombing. 16-pound um, bombs must have done almost no damage at all. And uh, there was no bomb aiming facility. Um, all he had was a hole in the floor of the cockpit to, to try and aim through. And uh, when you read his logbook, it's, it's clear that, um, um, that his chances of actually hitting anything were, 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 were fairly remote. But he had a, had a jolly good go at it. Um, and uh, it, 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 was, it was pretty much a backwater. There was some uh, enemy opposition. There was certainly anti-aircraft fire, um, uh, but there weren't no, the, the, the large hordes of, of enemy aircraft uh, uh, to, to oppose them as there were uh, on the Western Front. Um, he, the risks, I, I, I would say, were, were more to do with mechanical failure. So say, Imbros is 15 miles uh, offshore, so each flight involved a 15-mile water crossing there and a 15-mile water crossing back again. Um, and um, in fact, uh, about halfway through his period out there, they set up a new operation uh, on the island of Theso, which is uh, off the coast of Bulgaria. Uh, it's because Bulgaria had joined the war on the Axis side. And um, this involved a 90-mile water crossing uh, in the Bristol Scout here. Um, in, the days, in, that, in those days, of course, he had no radio, um, no GPS. Uh, and uh, for the vast bulk of that 90-mile uh, crossing, he would have been out of sight of land. Um, the compass would have been completely or certainly very unreliable. Mm. So um, it was uh, it was quite a quite an adventure that. Um, but he he seems to have survived uh, more or less unscathed. He had a, um, an exciting week in the March of 1916, when he tipped up two Bristol Scouts uh, three uh, three days apart, um, and he was he was extremely fed up because they were both his favourite aircraft. He loved the Bristol Scouts dearly. Um, and the first one he t t tipped on its back when it had an engine failure and he, he, he misjudged the landing. Uh, the second one was 1264, the one that we're rebuilding. And he'd, he was originally fitted with a, an engine that actually developed about 65 horsepower. 
but he got fed up with not being able to keep up with the more modern Newport 11 and he decided to switch engines to this Lerone engine which was interchangeable with the Gnome um, but developed about 90 horsepower. Um, it's also about 50 pounds heavier and on his first landing he tipped it on its nose as well and gosh was he fed up at the end of that. And then about three days after that was when he had the encounter with the, um, the Fokker Eindecker uh, and managed to empty a drum of ammunition at him. These men, they were pioneers in the true sense. There'd never been an aerial war before, had there? So everything was new. Yes. Uh, it is um, it is astonishing how quickly they, they, they picked up the, uh, the, the techniques for, for aerial combat. As I say, uh, we've already talked about all the experiments they did with armament. They, um, they experimented, obviously, with, with bombing. Um, one of the other pioneering things that happened, nothing to do with my granddad, but happened in the same area, was the use of um, uh, airdropped torpedoes. The first uh, ship to be sunk by an airdropped torpedo was out there. Um, so yes, they were very much into um, experimentation and so on. Um, one of my uh, favourite stories, uh, or, or yes, it, 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 yes, one of my favourite stories. The designer of the Bristol Scout was a um, a bit of an iconic figure called Frank Barnwell, who was the chief designer for Bristol's from nineteen. 15 through to his death in 1938 and he designed the Bristol fighter and the Bristol monoplane the Bristol bulldog uh, and right up to the Bristol Blenheim mm. but uh, all of those were designed by a committee of designers uh, or a team of designers of whom he was the head the Bristol Scout was his personal design it, 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 it's entirely his work the Bristol Scout so it's very much his personal uh, favorite if you like but he came to it, the, the, the first project he was involved with at Bristol's was uh, called the um, uh, X-Plane. It was a, a project um, suggested by a Lieutenant Deniston Burney and uh, it was for a navalized aircraft. Uh, people from the earliest days had been flying aircraft um, from the water using floats. And the problem with floats was that they only really worked in very calm conditions. And because he was a naval lieutenant, he recognized that that you know, didn't make them very practical. So he suggested an aircraft with, A, folding wings so that it could, it could live in the davits of a warship and be lowered into the water. But he also suggested the use of hydrofoils. Um, hydrofoils had been worked on by a couple of Italians in, in about 1908, something like that. And so uh, Barnwell was involved in um, attempting to develop a, um, uh, a, an aircraft that, that took off on hydrofoils. The whole thing was completely barking mad <laughs> because uh, obviously the floats work whether the aircraft is static or, or running along the water, whereas the hydrofoils don't. So. Uh, when, when, the air, when, when the aircraft is static, it sits in the water, which means that your air propeller can't rotate. And so they came up with this uh, idea that they would have water propellers at the bottom of each hydrofoil um, and then a complex system of clutches so that the engine would either run the water propeller or the air propeller. And they spent about 18 months 
um, working on this idea, testing it at uh, Milford Haven in absolutely top secrecy. It was called the X Department and um, uh, Frank and his draftsmen were housed in a little private house away from the main design office in order to, to ensure absolute secrecy. Um, but uh, it, it, it was just, it was never ever going to work. They took a whole summer trying to get the hydrofoils stable um, and the uh, they did this by they couldn't get the water propellers to work so they towed it behind a, a, a torpedo boat uh, the, the hydrofoils weren't naturally stable so the pilot had to fly the hydrofoils as you would uh, uh, the, the ordinary aircraft uh, and in order to develop that technique they took the wings off the aircraft just to try and make that all work um, and um, uh, I still don't understand how when you got the thing up on its hydrofoils, how you would very quickly clutch the air propeller in without uh, the thing sinking back <laughs> into the water. Uh, and similarly, on landing, um, you would obviously make a glide approach, but the air propeller would still be rotating you know, as you descended. And nobody seems to <laughs> have, have thought these things through at all. But um, yes, uh, you know that that was one of the the, the, the sort of m mad ideas that they were working on uh, uh, as a way of developing uh, air warfare. We've had a resurgence of, of interest in World War One, and do you think previously that the the pilots of World War One hadn't had the recognition that maybe they deserved? I don't know. I think there's 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 uh, there's a lot of interest. Certainly, you know, people of my age grew up reading Biggles and uh, and so on and you no know, that was as much about World War One as it was about World War Two. There's a lot of interest obviously everybody's heard of you know, Baron Manfred von Richthofen, uh, everybody's heard of uh, Manick and Ball and all the other you know, World War One aces so I, I, no I'm not sure that's entirely true I think um, the uh, no, they were obviously it, 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 they were the most romantic part of what was an extremely unromantic war uh, and I think they while of course uh, you know, there was a very high degree of risk uh, involved particularly if you were fighting on the western front um, on the whole they got a pretty good deal compared with um, with a lot of the, the, the guys that didn't um, I uh, I draw a comparison between my grandfather who as I say did these uh, six seven months um, flying uh, lots of new types of toys to play with um, all sorts of interesting things to do uh, and living in not particularly comfortable conditions but um, but no not as bad as living in the trenches his first cousin after whom I'm named um, well died of his injuries received on the first day of the Battle of the Somme um, where uh, of his battalion, I think 690 out of 850 men uh, were killed or injured, and 20 out of 23 officers were killed or injured. Um, and they don't really get any sort of recognition at all. Um, in the case of this David Bremner, he was in the second trench, and uh, so at, I think, about 7 o'clock, the first trench went over the top, uh, none of them got past their own barbed wire and then half an hour later he had to order his own men over the top knowing exactly what was coming to them um, and that heroism he, uh, it, 
while you know, we do sort of recognise it, um, uh, I think, no, I think the pilots on the whole got a pretty good deal. And when she flies for the first time next spring, how will you feel personally? <laughs> it's going to be the most uh, astonishing, amazing, unbelievable experience. Uh, the first flights will be done, I hope, by this uh, test pilot who has 13,000 hours on so World Jean War One aircraft. This is Gene DeMarco. Um, and uh, he will come across from New Zealand, fingers crossed, and do this, this first flight because there is, there's nobody in history better qualified um, to do that. But for us, it's going to be uh, obviously the culmination of a huge amount of work, but also the feeling of being able to recreate granddad's experience of flying um, will be very, very special. Um, I've already... Uh, you know, by just being able to sit in the cockpit, you can you can relive some of that experience. Um, the the Bristol Scout is a tiny, tiny cockpit. Uh, it was famous for it, and uh, my granddad was like me, six foot three. And when he first he was asked to to to, to try one out because they obviously thought he was a good pilot, he's found he, he said, "I'm sorry, I can't do it because uh, his knees just caught on the instrument panel yeah. here." And um, uh, so he asked reluctantly to be posted to somewhere to fly seaplanes, and they um, they said, uh, well, they, they 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 obviously ignored him and posted him to a Bristol Scout squadron anyway, um, and so he had to get on and work out how to to operate it, and he found that if he took the cushion out, he could just about get enough room to to, to move, move his knees, and I've got exactly the same problem. <laughs> in fact, I have to take my shoes off as well in order to 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 operate the, the rudder successfully, but uh, of course. Uh, you know, that that's that's about a tenth of the uh, the experience, the feeling we're going to get uh, when we actually go fly the thing for the first time. One of the benefits of this aircraft is that it's small enough to be housed in a um, a trailer, and so unlike most First World War aircraft, which will be built at a particular location and on the whole stay there, um, we hope to be able to to, to take it to different destinations it, it'll take you know a couple of hours to rig or something once we've got it there but it means that it can be seen you know um, in, in all sorts of places that otherwise it wouldn't do and finally what would your grandfather have made of, of you building this aircraft I I think first thing he would have said is you're spending too much money <laughs> uh, but I think I hope he would be proud of, of what we've done um, uh, it, it's um, it's something that, that you don't really think about because you just get your head down and, and get on with it. But um, it's, uh, I hope he would be proud of, of what we're doing. Well, David, thank you. And I, for one, can't wait to see it fly. Thank you. Okay.